Hello and welcome to the One Sealed Letter podcast, where we explore the legacy of letter writing and bring this beautiful art form into the 21st century. I'm your host, Kay Collier, the voice and warm body behind this podcast, and Catherine Hastings and company, our sponsor. In planning this episode today, I felt totally shocked that I hadn't done an episode yet on wax seals. I thought, how could that be? Because so much of my world and what I'm creating revolves around wax seals. I know most of you who listen to this podcast found me through Instagram and the artwork that I create from antique wax seals. And on Instagram, I've shared some about my collecting and over the time shared which pieces I acquired at different times that I acquired them and some of the history as well. I have an antique guide coming out. I'll share more about that at the end of the episode. But for just now, I wanted to give you a little bit more of an understanding of my own history collecting antiques, some of the things that I've learned, dive into the mindset around collecting. The guide will cover some of those skills as well, but I don't have as much space in the guide to just tell you interesting stories that have happened while I've been collecting antiques. And so I thought that this episode would be a great space to do that. The history of antique wax seals is fascinating. It starts with the invention of seals thousands of years ago as a security measure for correspondence. They worked in a couple different ways. First, a seal would make sure that something hadn't been tampered with. So you imagine sending a letter through the mail. If the wax seal is in any way broken, the wax tended to be quite brittle at that time, or the paper is ripped, the recipient would know that it had been tampered with. So it was a security measure first, but it also was a way of authenticating a document. Imagine that you've written your last will and testament, or you've written an important state letter, and it goes out through the mail. When it's received on the other side, or it's, you know, you're, you've passed away and they're contesting the will, the seal on the document would give it its authenticity. They would know that this specific seal belonged to this specific person, and they would trust it. And so it's a security measure um, in those two ways. And I don't know what changed, but around the early 1800s, wax seals began to change a bit. The, initially, wax seals had been very specific to the person who owned them. So it was either their family crest or some type of crest that was specific to that individual, or if it were maybe a, a role that somebody held in the church or in government, the seal would be specific to that institution. In the early 1800s, seals began to have different designs. There were still the heraldic seals of so the crests and all of that, but there were also ones that were just kind of fun and beautiful, and there were motifs that were repeating. So think about um, seals you may have seen me work with, doves, sparrows, anchors, horses, ships, lions. There's 
hundreds of them of motifs that were created again and again. And there was also mass production of seals in the late 1700s. Wedgwood had a, a seal carving operation. Then there's Jean Voyez, who's a figure I've talked about some on Instagram. He made fakes and named his company Wedgwood. So people thought it was Wedgwood and were buying it. Um, I actually really love collecting his pieces. I think they're more fun than Wedgwood because he was such a wily man. Um, and then there's James Tassie, who was a Scottish gem carver. He was known for the portraits that he'd carve of notable figures of the time. I want to say there's over 500 or something. It's an incredibly high number. He was a very talented gem carver. He made series of seals that people could purchase and they could have them just as beautiful objects to collect, but also they could be used as seals. Some of his most famous ones are from his Grand Tour collection. The Grand Tour was a tradition going back until I think it's starting probably around the Renaissance or so, young men from the British Isles would travel through Europe. It was considered a part of their education to do so. And so they'd usually hop a boat to France and then travel extensively through France, make their way across Europe by foot, maybe see the Alps. And then the main destination would be Italy, just with the, the classics all of the architecture, um, you know, the, the antiquities there. There was so much for them to learn about, so many great thinkers. Um, fewer men went further to Turkey um, and Greece. Really, Italy was the main destination. So you'll find in art from, I don't know, 18th century, 19th century, English art, um, references to Grand Tour, James Tassie Seals, the Grand Tour collection, has a lot of classical motifs. So bringing that inspiration and education from the continent and, and putting it into these beautiful gems. And then it was around the 1820s that seals were being made in Paris, in Palais Royal. The, some of the, the seals that are my favorite and ones that probably are yours as well, so people who follow my work really love, come from Palais Royale. The amethyst glass spinning wheel seals, so the ones that have those beautiful purple gem-like handles, they look like they're gold. They're actually armulu, which is a copper alloy with zinc. It's, you know, it really looks like, like gold, but those objects came from Palais Royale Pretty much all of the atui seals, so the, the drawer seals, the case seals, those came from there as well. And then there were a lot of just individually carved pieces, you know, a beautiful dove with a letter in its mouth or an olive branch in its mouth would be carved either as a little pendant to go on a watch chain or on a necklace or on a bracelet. And so the tradition of wax seals began to change and it wasn't as important at that point to authenticate a document or to seal it. They had other measures for doing that. 
this is more just for fun correspondence. If someone was sending a letter to a friend or a loved one, they would maybe seal it um, with a wax seal. My journey collecting wax seals started in, in two different places. So one was beginning to collect modern seals. I think by my freshman year of college, I had my first seal. And then I went to Italy and in Amalfi, I visited the Amatruda papery or um, paper mill. I carry Amatruda paper in my shop, by the way, if you're interested. It's the most beautiful, soft cotton paper. It's They claim it's the oldest papery in or oldest paper mill in Europe. I think it depends on how you define Europe because there um, is a papery in the Czech Republic, which I think is actually a little bit older than Amatruda. Anyway, getting off on a tangent here. When I went there, I got a modern seal with my initial that could f- turn. So one side of it was a script and then the other side was printed. Very beautiful. And then on the other side, I began collecting antiques and pretty desk objects. I really love silver mint julep cups. I don't collect that many of them, but I like following those. Um, And silver boxes just for organizing stamps and stuff like that. And I had been really into stationery and letters my whole life. I collected vintage postage where I lived in Ithaca, New York. There was a coin shop, a collector coin shop that I would go hang out in that man happened to collect postage as well. And there's a whole history with discount postage, basically the U.S. government over-minted postage. And so you can buy postage at, you know, 80% of face value, which I thought was fascinating and also beautiful that you could have those cool postage. So I'd, I'd kind of been figuring out how do you buy old things around letter writing from that experience and figuring out postage and, you know, other accessories. And one day I just combined the two things and looked up antique wax seals. I didn't know that they existed, but I already had a collection of seals and they were all modern. Um, And then I had this collection of other kind of antique and vintage things. And sure enough, um, I searched on eBay and I found the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. It was a Palais Royale amethyst glass rotating or Mulu wheel seal bit of a mouthful. I don't think it even had all those words on it. It probably just said antique spinning seal or something. (laughs) Um, That's the thing you'll also learn is that there's a lot of different terms to find things. So you actually want to be looking under all different types of terms in hopes that you find the thing. It's a little bit of a scavenger hunt. I don't remember if it was a buy it now option or an auction. I'm pretty sure it was an auction though. And I won it. And I don't remember the exact amount I paid, but I think it was for, or no, I think it was about $650. It it was over 600 and I think it was under 700 and it arrived. It was so beautiful. My best friend, Francesca was visiting from Copenhagen. She speaks French. The most of the seals in that um, specific set that are on the wheel are in French. We got a jewelry loop. We wrote everything down. We decoded it. We tried to figure out the messages. It actually took me until pretty recently to really put everything in that seal into context. A lot of antique seals you can translate, but then you have to figure out what would this have meant to the original viewer and and go from there. Anyway, Francesca and I had a wonderful time decoding it. It was, to me, 
the most precious and beautiful desk object around, um, especially since I'd never heard of seals. I couldn't believe this thing existed. It was just so pretty. I'm curious for those of you who have seen my antiques, if you've had a similar reaction when you've seen things for the first time, just, wow, this is really cool. I didn't even know it existed. Anyway, that was my initial reaction. And I felt a little bit ashamed or guilty that I had spent $650 on this seal. Maybe it was under that. I, I think it, I think it was between six and seven. Anyway, that amount now I've learned was a steal. Those pieces at very, very minimum would go for 1200. And that's if you happen to find it and can get it at that price. A lot of them go above 3000. So even though I felt this guilt of, oh my gosh, this thing literally just presses wax. How did I spend so much money on it? but I knew I loved it and I knew I would love it for always. Um, it, it's kind of the, you know, interesting thing, thing about collecting is the value of it is so tied to the person who owns it or the person who's selling it. So it is a little bit hard to benchmark what something is worth, but that specific seal was definitely a steal. And then I kept track of different antiques that were on the market. I learned more about where to source them, finding the right dealers, those types of things. I go into it in the guide. I, I tell you the main places to start. So Etsy, eBay, and antique shops. I give you my favorite sellers in each of those areas. I also teach you how to find um, other sellers that might have stuff. I also teach you how to make sure it's the right quality. So what I'm looking for in a seal uh, is just as an example, I've had numerous that seals that I've acquired that I either have not really been able to see or it's been blurry um, with the photo. And I've gotten a good gut feel of what I'm looking at and what it's worth. And if I break it down, there's probably about 30 different things that I'm thinking about subconsciously, uh, but it's not that complicated. I've gone through all the main things that I actually am noticing and that are influencing my decision to buy something or figuring out wh where I would would price it at. And I give you some guidance on that in the guide. I do give guidance on setting a budget and all of that too. Um, but there's, you know, it's it's a real range in types of pieces and what they might cost depending on who's selling them and when they're selling them and all of that. And I mentioned that I hadn't had any experience with antique wax seals at all when I began. I didn't know that they existed. If you are thinking about starting a collection, you have a total foot <laughs> ahead because, or a leg up, um, because there is so much more information. Even just, the guide will have a lot, but even just the photos that I'm compiling of different types of seals will help you understand what's out there. You can start to see what you like, what types of seals you gravitate towards. Maybe that's a certain style of seal. Maybe it's a cube seal or a wheel seal, or maybe it's an individual glass seal or a fob, one that you could wear on a, a chain or on a, um, around your neck or on a bracelet. You'll get a sense of the style, but also the motif. What's that design? Are you drawn to maybe nautical motifs, anchors and ships or animals? Is it, you know, foxes or birds or squirrels? There's so many different things out there. Um, 
in the guide, I teach how to develop a wish list. And there's some questions that help you guide the right things. One of my recommendations is to create a Pinterest board with the seals that you would really like. Chances are you're not going to get the exact seal that you see in the photo, but there are always seals coming along um, and ones that are similar to ones that you're interested in. One of the, the pieces of wisdom that I've learned numerous times in my time collecting is that there are always more sales or always more seals <laughs> and sales of seals. There are always more seals. Of course, there is this feeling of scarcity when you collect an antique because we can't go back in time. We can't create more pieces. It's not like I can just snap my fingers and there's an etui seal to buy. It doesn't work that way. But if you know what you want, you keep looking and you're patient. These seals will find their way to you. One of my beliefs in, in collecting antiques is that we are just stewards of the seals and I think about how long they have have been and how much you know longer they'll be past when I'm here it's an honor for me to get to experience working with these seals but I also feel like I need to take care of them for other generations um, I don't want them just in a museum behind glass I want them to be something that people can continue to use so that we can really feel history we can touch the things that somebody carved by hand that somebody pressed onto an important letter um, or a frivolous letter like just a fun letter to a friend that that was being used 200 years ago I just think that's really beautiful and hopefully 200 years from now it's still being used and we are able to just connect to, to being a part of that history I think that mindset of stewardship for me helps in a few ways because it helps me believe that the right seals find their place to the right home. I think of it more as the seal having the power in the way and that it's it's working its way through the world and I am just here to, you know, care for it and appreciate it when it's in my collection, but then it will have a life beyond me. Um, and that's a really beautiful thing. Um, it also gives me the patience to just wait and, and trust in the process. Um, it's supposed to be fun. So if you're collecting antiques, yes, you're going to have a wish list. Yes, you're going to miss out on seals. That happens. I can talk a little bit about that. But it's about enjoying what you are collecting. And so it, the process itself of looking for seals, creating those wish lists, that should be super fun. You get to basically create your own little digital museum of all of that. Then finding the seals, um, networking, finding the right shops even for me like dreaming about certain places I want to travel and like the flea markets in Paris that I want to visit there there's so much adventure and storytelling that goes into antique wax sales which is super fun and then once you acquire antique pieces the joy of using them the joy of sharing them it's one of the most unique types of antiques that you can collect in that it really can be shared with the world. You can take your antique and press it on a piece of wax and it's created something that is brand new because you've just pressed it, but also really old because that seal did the exact same thing 200 years ago. So of course, I I could just speak about seals forever. I think they're so interesting. Um, but I do think the mindset is really important. 
have the mindset that you're a steward, have the mindset that there are always more seals, the seals find their way to the right homes, and just trust in the process. All of that will help. I mentioned that you're going to lose seals. That happens. Hopefully you won't lose seals once you've bought them. So what I mean by that is hopefully once it's in your house that you take good care of it and you don't lose it. I've actually lost a couple because some of them are so tiny and they just got lost. I don't know where they went. Um, it does happen, um, but the more so, um, you're there's going to be sales that come along that maybe somebody sees it first and buys it, or it's an auction and somebody outbids you, or it's listed for a price that's just too high and you can't afford it, or you can't afford it right now. That's just part of the game, so just know that's going to happen. You're not going to win every sale. That's okay. Okay. Uh, having that mindset that the right ones will find their way to you helps. Example of that, for those of you who follow my work, you might know the wax seal that I have with the beautiful bow on it. It's one that I like to scrape the wax off and then put it on another color. It's so thin that the bow almost looks translucent. It's so beautiful. And it's just the most beautiful, graceful bow with a little crest below it. I had wanted a bow in my collection for a really long time. There was an auction for one, and I don't remember where I was. I want to say I was out on the Olympic Peninsula. I was somewhere out in nature with my family having a wonderful day. I remember we were at the beach, and there was some bald eagles, and um, I'd written my, my friend Melissa some that day, but I just missed the auction, and I was so bummed. I wrote the seller and I, you know, I said, oh, I was so sad about this. I really wanted a piece with a bow and oh, um, if something falls through with the buyer, you know, please let me know. Well, they wrote me back and they said, no, you know, nothing fell through with the buyer, but I do have another one with a bow. Uh, it's not the same seal, obviously, but it has a bow and I'd be willing to sell it to you. And they gave me a price that was less than the one that I had lost and it was a more beautiful seal. I, if I, I, I don't even remember what the other one looked like now, but it was definitively more beautiful. And you've all seen that seal. If you follow my work, you've seen the one with the bow that I scrape. So I tell you that just because that for me was proof that if, okay, if one doesn't work out, another one will or a better one will. And that's part of the mindset. There is a little bit of that fear of, missing out the FOMO in auctions. And so in the guide, I give you a lot of tips around how to work around that um, and particularly how to not have that drive your strategy because the last thing that you want to do is get into a thing where you're just bidding and bidding because you don't want to lose. It's I think it's something in our nature where our, our little reptilian brain just has to keep going and bidding. I don't even play any of that game. Um, I always submit absentee bids when I work with auction houses. And then if I'm in an auction, let's say on eBay, I have a few other methods that I'll work around to stay out of that. One that I break down in the guide for you is to only bid at the very last moment and bid with your maximum bid. I won't go too much into exactly how that works, but basically on eBay, the the highest bid wins, but the price that they pay is just an increment above the second highest bid. So for example, if let's say you bid 
$100 and I bid $200, I would win, but I wouldn't pay $200. I might pay like $101 or $102. So just a little bit above what that second highest bidder bid. If you wait until the last few moments to bid, so I say last five seconds, I'm usually about three to four seconds hitting that bid. You put in for the absolute highest you would feel comfortable bidding. In doing that, you know you're not going to go over what you feel comfortable with. So it's already, boom, auction's over. You're not going to get into something where you feel like, oh, I got a bid, I got a bid. I don't want to lose it. If you didn't bid high enough, you lost it. But you know you only bid what you feel comfortable. So you automatically are only bidding at a level that feels good for you. In the guide, again, I break down more on budget and stuff like that and how to find the right you know, pieces at right prices and stuff like that. That is one that will save you a lot of money though, because rather than bidding continually and having somebody continue bid you up, because other people that don't know that trick, if they did see that you'd outbid them, they'd probably bid again and then you'd bid and then they'd bid and then you'd bid, etc. If you wait till the very end, it's just whoever has the highest bid wins. There's nobody that's going to bid you up after that. So you keep the price low by not bidding and then you give yourself the very best shot by bidding at the very end. Key is the last five seconds and bid your absolute max bid. Again, the guide has a lot more information and things that you can do on this um, and some tools that I use around it, but that, that's the general strategy. Another tip that I give is to find a buddy. For those of you who have already purchased the guide, just keep an eye out when the guide comes out. It's going to come out October 1st. I will send an email with the guide and then I'm also going to ask anyone that wants a buddy to let me know and then I can pair you up so you have another person that is also starting to collect antiques. The reason I recommend having a buddy is that you have somebody that is a support resource. So it's basically double the eyes, double the brains, double the research power, just by having one other person who's also a collector. That has helped me so much. Um, my two friends that I talk about collecting the most with are Jess and Melissa. And basically what happens is if we find something that we think the other person would like, we send it to them. Or if we're bidding on something and we don't want the other person to bid on it and bid us up, we'll message the other person and say, hey, heads up, I'm bidding on this. And then sometimes we'll message and we'll go, oh, well, I'm bidding on it too. And then you know, okay, we don't want to bid each other up. Um, we want to, you know, f figure out who should be going for the bid. And if you have a buddy, at least for me, I always just prioritize the relationship. I know what's high on someone else's wish list. They know what's high on my wish list. And so it's actually kind of straightforward in figuring out who's bidding and when. Or if, let's say, someone's bidding and they have priority, maybe they bid first, but then they're going to max out at a budget and your budget might be higher than that, you could just have an agreement that you'll watch the auction and if it gets above what they're comfortable with, then you might bid after. A story about that. Melissa had wanted an Etui set, one of the case seals, the drawer seals, for a long time. And I don't know, for a long time. She's she's built, I told you, in a, a wonderful collection and not a lot of time. But in her time collecting, she had always wanted an Etui seal. 
one came up and we were messaging about it. Turns out we were both bidding on it. Beautiful sterling silver, small seal. So one of the ones from Palais Royale, 1820s. And I decided, okay, well, I have a tweeze already. This is her first to tweet. I know she wants one. Like, you go for it. Give it your all. And I, you know, gave her some of my strategies. Of, okay, this is what you should expect for the bidding. This is how you do it. This is when you do it. And I say this not not to say, oh, you know, look at how, how magnanimous we are in, in, you know, not bidding each other up. But just to tell you, it made a huge difference because that seal went for half of what we were willing to pay for it. And if we both had been bidding and we didn't know the other was bidding, we would have bid each other up. One of us would have won it, you know, but we would have ended up paying a lot more. And so um, with that, it just then gives, you know, in that case, like another $1,600 to acquire another piece. Um, And so having a buddy in that sense is just, really good because you're not it's one less person that will outbid you or that you will outbid um and it's just fun to have a buddy too the a lot of times they'll see things that you don't see or they can kind of reassure you um I sent one to Melissa today where I was asking I said was the carving too rudimentary on this because part of the carving to me on the seal I was looking at did look a little rudimentary but there was part that didn't and so we kind of talked about, you know, that and um, had some agreement there on the style. I don't go into auction houses in this guide. I'll have another short guide on that. Auction houses are an entirely different animal. Um, you need to learn how to find auction houses first. It's not like there's one auction house like eBay is an auction house. It's all these different auction houses all over the world. Figuring out how to be qualified to bid in the auction house, submitting absentee bids. Um, if you win, figuring out how you do the payment. Um, a lot of that is done wire transfer. There's an additional fee, usually 25 to 30% tacked on to what your winning bid is. So it ends up being pretty expensive sometimes, but also sometimes there can be pieces that just go unnoticed and you can get a really good deal. Um, shipping is also complicated with auction houses because a lot of auction houses don't have in-house shippers, which means you need to find somebody in that little city out in the middle of some country you've not been to yet, um, to go pick it up. So all that to say, um, that's a, a another area. A lot of the techniques, um, if you end up getting the guide that you will learn in the guide, will give mindset though that will help with working with auction houses it will help you figure out where you should benchmark your bids it'll help you figure out what pieces to put in your wish list how you prioritize them the wish list is one of the first things that i teach in the guide and the reason i do that is because it helps you prioritize what you're going to be looking for and to really keep your goals at the forefront of your mind so as an example, if let's say a pretty seal comes up and you buy it, but it's not high on your wish list, and then maybe a week later, one of your wish list seals comes up, but you can't get it because you've, you know, bought this other seal, 
there's that opportunity cost. And so the wish list helps with that of really saying, okay, I know the seal is beautiful, but is it like the seal for my collection? Is it really the one that I want? And if it's not, then let it go. I actually find when I decide not to purchase a seal, some of that feeling so joyful for me because I have the sense of what the collection is that I'm creating. And I'm just it's deciding what's in it, but also what's not in it. It's both, both things are actually building that collection and building that aesthetic. So I think that's kind of a, a fun thing, um, in, in really figuring out what direction I'm taking the collection. I mentioned that you're going to lose seals. That's inevitable. Um, the other thing I want to tell you is you are going to make mistakes. I repeat it again. You are going to make mistakes and that's okay. It's impossible to collect any type of antique without making some mistakes. When I look at my collection as a whole, I really think of it as a whole. I don't look at it as, oh, I paid too much for this one, but this one was a steal. I want to learn, obviously, as I'm collecting. But I know that it's inevitable in collecting antiques that I'm going to buy the wrong pieces sometimes. I might buy the wrong quality. I might be, you know, impulsive and thinking that something's great and I get it and it's not what I want at all or it's not aligned with my collection. That happens. One of my classmates um, from college who also is an art history major with me is now an, um, an art dealer. And he says that he even makes mistakes, um, you know, and he's doing dealing of art full time and he makes mistakes. So I say that in a, in a way that I hope gives you some ease as you're approaching antique collecting to give yourself permission to learn because you can't acquire the most beautiful seals without also making mistakes. And I know it, it feels awful, but, um, yeah, it's just part of the learning process. Um, another story I love about Jess is she got a blank seal beautiful seal. She found an engraver. They said, yeah, no problem. We do this all the time. We'll, we'll get your seal all set. And they engraved it the wrong way. And so I wish you could hear her laugh. I wish I could insert it in the podcast. Every time she talks about this seal, she has the funniest giggle. Uh, just because it's so silly. It's like they had one job. How, how did they say they did this all the time, but they did it in reverse. Um, but yeah, that kind of stuff happens. And you just trust that your, you know, batting average is, is pretty good overall and that the collection you're building is, is good overall. In the guide, I do give tips on how to avoid making mistakes. So I show you mistakes that I've made and, um, and I tell you about them too. So hopefully you can avoid those as well. And some of it's showing of, okay, this is what to look for in a seal. See how this looks versus this. This is what you want. This is what you don't want. It gives you, you know, there's so many little details to look at, especially because these things are just so tiny. Uh, I also give advice for how to avoid fakes. Every serious antique seal collector I know has bought at least one fake. I think I've bought five or six, and I currently have, I want to say I have three, maybe four. No, I have four still in my collection because the scam seller that I bought them from wouldn't let me return them because they were past the window of return. Uh, in the guide, I do show my some of my fakes 
and compare them to real seals so you can see, okay, this is the fake thing, this is the real thing. It's really difficult. Uh, you know, when I acquired those fakes, I probably had over 200 seals by then. So in my mind, I should have had somewhat of an eye. It just didn't occur to me. I didn't, I really didn't think that somebody would make a fake and pass it off as a real piece. And so I think my guard was kind of let down. So I think if you're aware that there are fakes out there, it will make you a little bit more wary. Um, in the guide, I give some, you know, questions that you can ask to help figure it out. Um, and part of it's just gauging the response of the seller um, and kind of should you trust them or not. Uh, there also are certain types of antiques that are more likely to be fake than others. Loose glass seals are the ones that are the hardest um, to tell right now. And, and it's the ones that are most common fakes. The five... Or did I say four or five that I have now? Um, it's a heart, two witches, um, and a bird. So it's four. Um, those were all glass. And they're still pretty. I actually still like them. I don't mind that they are fakes. I mind that the seller lied and that I paid an antique price for something that's modern. And um, in the, the guide, I do give a list of trusted sellers. So those are people that I, you know, I don't think there's any chance they're going to sell you of a fake seal. There isn't a good way of telling you don't go to these sellers because what happens is the main person that I know of that makes these fake antiques, I don't know them personally. I've had some choice words by email with them. They just keep creating new stores and selling them and then they delete all of the negative reviews. So it looks like it's a legitimate seller and there's just no way to really know for sure th that you're working with a quality person unless you've worked with them and you've built that relationship and you have the pieces and stuff that establish that paper trail. Um, another place where a buddy system might help. I'm also wondering if it would help if I offer you some consulting options. So if you, you know, aren't sure about something, you can, can uh, reach out to me and I can guide you on that. So I know this episode has had a kind of a little bit of everything um, and a lot around the mindset. The guide comes out, as I mentioned, October 1st. Please pre-order it if you can. Um, the guide has so much information. I am just kind of in awe of it. I was like, oh, wow, I can't believe I'm giving all this information in this guide. It's amazing. And my intention is that it will save you a lot of money if you are collecting antiques because even just negotiating tips alone, that could the guide the cost of the guide could save you that much. You could save the basically the cost of the guide alone with one of those tips on a seal. So there's a lot in there that can help with that. Uh, and then if you have purchased the guide already, stay tuned for when it comes out. You'll get an email and then I'll have also a question about buddy system. So we can assign you uh, another person that can help look with you. And yeah, just remember that the right seals find their way and you just want to know what you're looking for. Start to develop that plan. The guide takes you step by step through that. So nothing that you need to, to do just yet. But if you want to follow my Pinterest boards, totally free. I'll put those in the show notes. You can start creating your own wish list there. Uh, if you've stock it through my profile too. You'll see my wish list um, and also a bunch of random 
beautiful food recipes and architecture and art and stuff that inspires me. There's, I think, over 5,000 pins on there, but I'm going to be building out the, the antique boards. There's not 5,000 in those yet, um, but we'll have a lot more um, photos in there in the coming months, and it's a great spot just to see what's out there. And then if you want to check out my wish list as well, you can. For the most part, I'm pulling back from collecting uh, particularly since I know people are wanting to acquire wheel seals and etuis and all of that, and I feel like a lot of my collection is complete. I would like an enamel etui and a fan etui, but other than that, um, I feel like I have the main pieces for the collection, and so I am pulling back somewhat from collecting, but in that wish list, you'll see some of the ones that I really would like someday if they're out there. Um, and I do think of seals as circulating you know, we're just stewards of them. They're circulating around the world. There is a finite supply, but it shouldn't create that feeling of scarcity because there always will be another. Today, I'd like to sign off with my favorite goodbye antique seal. It's a pair of scissors and it says, we part to meet again. 